Welcome to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on Jair or on our podcast, this is the show where we try and make sense of the world of business and finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zelwa. I'm financial planner and owner at Adapt Wealth Management. We're a boutique financial advice firm. We work with business owners, professionals, and those planning for retirement. I've been doing this podcast for almost 18 months now, so you can search all the back uh, episodes, either looking on iTunes, searching for the Finance Hour, or otherwise feel free to go to my business website, adaptwealth.com.au. They're all there. Just a word from our lawyers, anything we discuss today is general in nature. Uh, Don't go and uh, put anything in place just on the basis of the general rant that we're going to have today. Uh, Make sure you go and get advice from either... Your accountant, lawyer, financial advisor, or your neighbour when he comes over for a beer and a barbecue. Well, the topic of this week's show is art, philanthropy, and startups. Uh, my guest is Nathan Sher, who has had a fascinating business journey and is now uh, a, a tech entrepreneur and investor, director and board member of several technology companies, both in Israel and Australia. And I'm looking forward to a great discussion with Nathan uh, in the next, starting in the next few minutes. But before we uh, embark on that, it is time for Ruben's Rant. Ruben's Rant! Now, my rant this week is about the Royal Commission. Once again now, the Royal Commission, it's done with financial advice and it's gone on, to the, on business lending. And, the, and they're investigating quite closely all the lending that the banks have done to small business owners. And as you'd expect, they're talking about all the bad stories. So people who have had franchises that have gone bad, uh, banks coming to people and saying, we need to increase your loan repayments, uh, parents being guarantors for their children's loans and the, and the business going bad. And there's no doubt there has been some unfair dealings uh, that would have happened along the way. It's also important to note that there is a complaint system in place which has been operating successfully for a long time, which is called the Financial Ombudsman Service, which all the people uh, who have been wrongly done by can certainly apply, and often they will rule in the favour of the customer if that is uh, appropriate. But I think we sometimes uh, we may be losing sight of what the role of banks are. A big part of the role of banks is to provide funds, to lend money, to to individuals, to investors, to business owners. Uh, If we tighten all that lending too much, what's going to happen is more and more people are going to be excluded from borrowing money from the banks. And that's going to be bad for the economy. And what will happen as well is if people go to the banks and can't get loans, we're then going to hear a whole lot of complaints about how they've been excluded from the banking system. So I think we've got to keep in perspective that, uh, sure, there are problems which occur along the way, but let's not end up with an unintended consequence of it being more and more difficult for people to borrow money. What's going to happen then is people will go to more non-bank lenders, uh, which will charge higher interest rates. So I really think that this... uh, Any crackdown on banks' business lending is going to create unintended consequences. I think people need to take personal responsibility for the amount they borrow and the security which they put up. Okay, now that was my rant of the week. We're going to have a short break, and then uh, we'll be back with Nathan Sher. 
Welcome back to the Finance Hour. This week's show, we are talking about art, philanthropy, and startups. My guest is Nathan Scher, who has had a fascinating business journey. He's a tech entrepreneur and investor, director and board member of several technology companies, both in Israel and Australia. He's also a fellow dad of a year nine uh, kids at Yavna. That is uh, Gil and Giddy, and we have to have a big shout out to those boys as well. And our boys are in the soccer team together. So that's my initial uh, disclosure. So Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ruben. Thanks for having me. And we better, I suppose, do a shout out to the boys before we get going. Well, well, hi, boys. I hope you're listening. And uh, Ruben, press that button. <laughs> <laughs> and a special shout out to Strockers. Strockers is actually one of the biggest fans of the show. So uh, hopefully we'll get a few more listeners from the Year 9 boys on this particular episode. So Nathan, the topic of this week's show is art, philanthropy and startups. Uh, I know that those three are passions of yours, but they are a bit of a strange mix. Can you explain to me how, uh, how you integrate those three things into your life? Well, thanks, Ruben. Um, it's an interesting place to start. But when you look at startups and when you think about philanthropy in its modern sense and you look at investing in art there's a common theme in in all three in in each of them you're backing individuals you're you're putting money behind either the artist or a particular charity or someone who's doing something better for the social good uh, or you're making investment decisions about particular technologies or people Mm -hmm. in an investment field yeah in each case you're putting some risk capital out there. If you're yeah. buying art that you hope is going to appreciate in value, yeah. you're effectively backing the art, backing the artist, mm-hmm. and backing their ability to uh, continue yeah. to uh, create their art and to innovate in their space. What you can't control there is how accepted the art is in its marketplace. Mm. You need a great agent, you need a great gallery, and you need the crowd of art investors or mums and dads to take an interest in that particular artist. There's a lot of things you can't control. So something like an artist, I mean, that's where you're really backing an individual in a way. But as you say, they need to have the support team around them. But when you're talking about um, businesses and charities, it's it's probably usually more a a number of people together. Well, that's true. But we we often get approached by young entrepreneurs who have a great idea um, they're mm-hmm. setting about building their startup. Mm-hmm. They're looking for some funding and some for some expertise. And you have to make similar decisions. You have to you have to say to yourself, "Is this a guy I can back? Does he have all the components that a good entrepreneur yeah. has to have? Is his idea a world beating idea, and can yeah. he get it out there?" And then all of the things that you can't control is: Are people, for instance, going to download that app onto their smartphone mm. and use it? Are they going to see it as something that's as important? Yeah, to them as as he feels it is. Okay, great. Well, we'll get into that in more detail. Just to, just to uh, give the listeners a bit of an idea, uh, you're now a tech entrepreneur and investor. But can you give us a, just a short uh, a short summary of your journey to get to where you have been today uh, in terms of your your business career? Okay. Um, well, I I was born in the '60s, Ruben. So uh, by the time the '70s came along, and I was a teenager, Texas Instruments had just brought out a series of programmable calculators, which oh, yeah. meant you could you could store a little algorithm for a repetitive computation in a, in a handheld device. Right. And uh, shortly after that, the home computer, the first of the home computers, came out. 
The Apple, and, was it? Uh, well, the first things were... Or um, the Commodore. The Commodore yeah. 64. Yeah. So I, I didn't get my fingers on one of those while they were new, but uh, the first machine I had at home was a clone of an Apple IIe. Okay. Uh, but, you know, people my age, who at that point were 13 to 16, were getting their first touch of home computers. Mm-hmm. And the computing departments in universities uh, were all built around some very expensive mainframes. Uh, Around those years, there were probably four movies, believe it or not, that had an impact on helping me choose what direction Mm -hmm. I was thinking of taking in my life. Uh, One of them was a a movie that your listeners might like to look up. It's called The Forbin Project, Colossus. And it was a movie about artificial intelligence Uh, taking control of the armed forces uh, in America and becoming self-aware, which 40 years later was the same premise that the Terminator movies were built on. Self-awareness, or if you like, artificial intelligence, and that that movie came out in the early 70s. Later on, there were three other movies that had an impact on me. One was Tron, where a scientist gets sucked into a computer yeah. And becomes the Tron character. Yeah, a great movie called War Games. Oh, yes, a, I remember that. Yeah, about yeah. a com- computer potentially yeah. starting a thermonuclear yes. war, and uh, and even Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where <laughs> that was a great one. Where he's a bit of a hacker and uh, he's got some good technology in his room yeah. at home. And, so and Rocky I didn't I, feature I, in any of those movies. No. <laughs> so I, I figured this technical uh, bent and engineering and maybe being a little bit of a hacker before it was called a hacker was, yeah. was maybe for me. So when I studied uh, sort of the maths and sciences uh, at school, it took me into an engineering, an electrical engineering and computer science degree at the University yeah. of Sydney. And uh, after completing four years there, uh, I went out and got a programming job. So it wasn't called being a coder back then. Yeah. It was called a programmer. Yeah. And, and the work environment I found myself in was very much like the work environments in those movies. Um, cubicles of yeah. guys sitting at mainframe terminals and we were writing software that would be built into com- building management systems. It wasn't those sort of things where you see where they had like holes and punched in sort of... No, 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 I missed, no. I missed punch You're, cards. <laughs> you were past that? No, no, punch cards, the little chits that fell out of the punch cards were still on the floor in the university <laughs> lecture rooms but uh, by the time I had a job, my yeah. first job programming... We were on what today is called green screen computers, yeah, uh, which was just character based. But and and the the software we were writing then was effectively using exactly the same um, structures, yeah, uh, that are used today. Although uh, the environments for developers are much more mm-hmm. uh, complicated and elegant, yeah, uh, and developed in themselves. Yeah. Anyway, so I I had a. A job as a programmer, and within about nine months of having that job, uh, through a mutual friend, I met a business colleague and we became partners. And uh, he had just founded a business uh, which was in those days called Comtech Communications, and its job was to import and distribute and technically support some of the leading industry standard hardware and software solutions Mm. of that era. And um, that era was the beginning of the networking wave, and we so, had a lot so of... hang on, you would have been straight out of university then. What in your early twenties? 
Uh, that's right. Yeah, I was uh, 23. And this this fellow decided to take a 23-year-old partner on. Well, he, was, uh, he wasn't much older than himself. <laughs> we, we're really contemporaries. He, right. uh, David's a little older than me. Okay. But uh, uh, in those initial days, uh, there were, were two of us and then four of us. And ultimately, we built that business up over 14, uh, 15 years to uh, a staff of 1,400. Wow. Uh, producing... Uh, Solutions for large corporate and enterprise customers and government customers, yeah. uh, where we sourced product, where we built solutions, and we stayed up to date and, in fact, ahead of everybody else in Australia with the latest trends in networking, cyber, security, mm. storage, uh, and followed each of the waves of trends that came through. Wow. So how many years were you in that business for? Uh, we started that business uh, in early 88, yeah. and we sort of exited by 2001, having sold the business out to an international concern. Excellent. So post that, uh, have you sort of had a full-time day job, or, or did you give up Well, I, no, no, I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't give up anything. I, I took a very short break uh, at home yeah. uh, with my wife and my young family, and uh, after a couple of months, I actually went back to the big, the big company again, which was called Dimension Data at that stage, yeah. uh, which still exists today and is a leading force worldwide in what's, what's called systems integration, which mm-hmm. is that job, and uh, tried to find a area inside that business where I could run a little skunk works of, of great ideas and new ideas mm-hmm. to generate some startups. Uh, that the business could then roll out internationally. But mm. what occurred to me pretty soon after that was that all anybody wanted me to do was fix problems mm. that existed mm. in the business. It's interesting. You see that now in the banks, like the big banks, like they try and get involved in these sort of fintech startups. And when you've got like a big, big organization, it's often not the same culture that's required in terms of you know, getting startups It's not the startup culture anymore. Yeah, That's look, right. So, yeah. so in, in our business over those 15 years, we were lucky enough to maintain and build on the culture mm. that a small number of us had helped formulate uh, in the early days. And, and that business when, and, and still today, um, when it's looked at, is recognized as one of the best employers in the country, mm. won awards for the same. And the culture that existed in all the time we were there, and I know after many of the founders had moved on yeah. is one of the things that helped drive yeah. that business forward. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. It must be good to still see that business uh, thriving today. Well, it's great. And love catching up with people who worked there yeah. while we were there or some of the guys who have been there literally for 30 years wow. who I still see. Okay. So uh, since that point, uh, let's maybe just fast forward a, a few more years. And now you, uh, I look at your LinkedIn profile and your title is, Tech entrepreneur and investor. Right. Well, you, have so, write, you have to write something. <laughs> yeah, and there's a whole number of businesses that, that you're involved in uh, there. Do you want to maybe just give me an example of, say, you know, one or two of those businesses and what, sure. what you do? So, so the, the role that I play today with a very small team based here in Melbourne is that we nurture entrepreneurs who are doing startups. We invest in other people's businesses that might already be revenue positive and even cash flow positive. But we're looking for opportunities where a dollar in for us will be multiple dollars out in the future. And that that field, as you know, is either called private equity or venture capital. And our job there is to take 
our own money and some expertise and a little bit of mollycoddling and help mm-hmm. some of those younger entrepreneurs realize their dreams. And we do it uh, across approximately, at the moment, 10 direct investments. Yeah. And on top of that, we have some involvements as co-owners in venture capital firms. And they themselves are investing much larger sums in a large number of businesses. So we have quite an exposure to this space. And so those businesses are all in the, uh, in the tech space? Uh, well, they? just about every business that's a startup today has the nature of right. some kind of tech. Of course. But the business itself is not necessarily tech. So we're, mm. we're involved in a business called Moolah. Ah, we yes. were the seed or first investor in Moolah. And Moolah, Moolah's business is a fintech, as you mentioned, yep. and its offering to the market is small business loans yep. that are actually unsecured loans where people are looking for an alternative source of funds mm. other than from the mainstay mm. banks. Well, it's interesting. I was just uh, mentioning in my rant that uh, with the Royal Commission on Banks, there's more and more closer examination of how the banks lend to small businesses and the requirement for responsible lending as well. And I actually think what's going to happen is it's going to make it even more difficult for small businesses to access money from the banks, which I think is an unintended consequence. But that's where I guess, you know, businesses such as as yours, you know, will probably end up filling in the gap. Yeah, well, we're not to be misconstrued with payday lenders. Yeah. Payday lenders making small personal loans to people who probably shouldn't be Mm. given loans Mm. is not our business. Our business is to small and viable Mm -hmm. businesses who have found themselves with a shortfall of cash and either don't have the expertise or the relationships or the time to go and get a business loan from their business banker. Yeah, uh, if they have one. So uh, that particular business allows them to effectively almost overnight mm. and without security down against the loan, get access to between five and $25,000. Um, and they do so by permissioning our systems and algorithms into their financial systems, which might be mm. a zero system, yep. uh, might be a link to their uh, eBay back end mm. and and it allows us to keep our eyes on their business and link to their internet banking for, and or? potentially linked to their internet banking yeah. as well yeah and and this is just a new and algorithmic way for us to check their credit worthiness mm. so in that sense it's a technology business because it's exploiting uh the best and latest mm. in some artificial intelligence. And it can make that assessment super quickly, you're saying overnight. Correct. So the engine, the engine can make really that assessment literally within minutes, mm. uh, but we never let the robot make that decision all by itself. So it yeah. still remains a human-assisted decision. Mm. And the team at Muller started with two guys who both came out of the banking world, mm-hmm. and they came to us with an idea and a very small number of loans. Mm-hmm. And it was us, up to us to decide, was this a marketplace that we thought was big enough yeah. for them to be able to succeed. Did we believe these two guys had the smarts to pull mm-hmm. it off, the business acumen and the connections mm-hmm. uh, to, make it, to make it happen? Did we believe their idea of writing code that could approve loans and credit score people mm-hmm. using a range of services 
would would make decisions correctly. Yeah. And was it something that was bankable? So were mm. we going to be able to go to others and raise further capital to help mm. them build their business? Mm. That business now has um, more than 40 staff mm. working in the city. It has a loan book uh, in the vicinity of $50 million and growing daily. Wow. And uh, it's proven one thing for sure, uh, that this is a space Mm. where there is a need. Mm. Our customers are online every day and closing out loans yeah. with us. Yeah, uh, and, and, people want to, and people want to move quickly. There are quite a lot of uh, – there are a number of others in that sort of area as well. Is there, is there sort of increasing competition in that sort of online lending game? So there are, there are a handful of companies here mm. in Australia – uh, working in this space, and it's a very big space. Yeah. So there's no problem for a number of them to grow successfully. Yeah. One of the most visible at the moment is a company called Prosper. Yes. Which has a yes information memorandum out yeah. because they're planning on doing a public listing very shortly. Right. And I think that's going to be interesting because they're chasing a big number and they'll mm. probably get it, but mm. it will be a little bit of a bellwether mm. uh, in the industry for- as to what these things are worth it, it, there's probably i imagine in the us this is this is you know a much bigger part of their market i mean it's just a much bigger market it's so slightly more established and it's, and it's a much bigger only market, slightly right. more established yeah there are a few there are a few years ahead of us in many yeah. of the trends mm. in the technology space it's always been the case that uh, the american entrepreneurs are slightly better funded mm. they're slightly further ahead yeah um, and australia after all represents a small percentage of the global marketplace. Right. Probably around 2% of the, the global market. Mm. Okay. Uh, can you give me an example of one of the other companies that's, that's in, your, uh, in your portfolio? Sure. Um, we, uh, well, there's a few. We have uh, a company, we have an investment uh, with a company called Tonic Healthcare Media. And mm-hmm. Tonic's business is to put advertising screens in doctors' waiting rooms. Ah, yes. It's as simple as that. Uh, So once again, it's not a technology business. It's actually an advertising business. Yeah. And it's a bit of a land grab. It's about getting into enough doctors' offices and dentists' offices and hospital waiting rooms to be able to install screens and also print form brochures Mm. uh, that are of interest to people in the waiting rooms and the infomercials, if you like, yeah. and the collateral that gets played on those screens backs up uh, a certain proportion of advertising material, mm. and that's where the revenues are generated. It's interesting, that, that, isn't it? Because a doctor's waiting rooms and dentist's waiting rooms is somewhere you've got a real captive audience. There's literally nowhere to go. It's kind of, it's a little bit like the, um, you know, the shops in, a, in the airports, you know, People are there and they're not moving. Well, that's true. Um, and they're there sometimes for longer than they'd like to be. Yeah, that's so for sure. The, 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 experience, <laughs> the experience to date is either that you watch free-to-air television that the doctor has on a screen or yeah. a, a Foxtel channel, yeah. that you sit back on your smartphone and <laughs> yeah. do some Googling or Facebook. But if you're seeing information on the screen that's relevant to one of the reasons you may have come to the doctor, yeah. that's... Uh, what we tend to call a moment of truth. It's a, yeah. it's a moment where if you pitch the, adver- uh, the advertisement at someone when they're uh, more likely mm. to take notice of it, you have a better chance of getting the message through it or converting them to the product or service 
that's on there. And that, now, so what, what's interesting about that business is it's run by uh, two founders, uh, one guy called Matt Cullen who comes out of Medibank and knows the space mm-hmm. really well, if you like the commercial side of, of medicine really well. And he teamed up with Dr. Norman Swan, who was the ABC's preeminent, probably the country's preeminent uh, medico journalist in mm. this country. And not only do they run the advertising platform and the infrastructure, but under Norman's direction, they also produce, they have a production facility and they produce a lot of the information that gets played through the screens. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I want to just move on a bit to another uh, another, um, interest of yours. Or that you're involved in it, which is our crowd, which I understand, uh, you know, a lot of the people listening here will have the general sort of vanilla type investments. They might have some shares, Australian shares, international shares through funds. They might have some term deposits. But the, the area of private equity or startups is not an area that many small investors actually go into. Uh, for a number of reasons. Obviously, you know, whether they don't feel like they have the expertise, uh, the buy-in price might be too high. Uh, it is something that some of the large large funds go into. I know some of the large industry super funds have got big private equity inv- investments, but it's not something that you see the smaller mum and dad investors going into. But our crowd, I understand, is, uh, is tackling that issue. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> so... Um I'm glad you got to the question. Finally, <laughs> so, so let's let's unpick that a little bit. The, f- the first part is why don't mums and dads invest in venture capital? And yeah. there's really two reasons. One is it's difficult to do, mm. and two, it's extremely high risk. And by high risk, I mean you put your capital down, you see almost no return mm. in the form of dividends along the way, and you hope that the guys who are utilising your money in their venture or in their enterprise, end up doing very well so that you get your capital back after a few years Mm. with a lot of capital growth when they sell their business. Mm. So you can imagine if you do that on a bet-by-bet basis, if you go looking for young companies that you can personally invest in, Mm. you probably have to write out a reasonably sizable check Mm. and you're taking a gamble on one company. Mm. If you can put a similar size check into a fund Mm -hmm. that then takes – group uh, syndicated money takes money from a number of investors and spreads that bet mm. or that investment across a number of startup companies you're diversifying your risk sure uh, which means there will be losers in that portfolio yeah and there'll be winners in the portfolio yeah. and hopefully yeah. after a couple of years yeah. when you get your money back you get back an average of the winners yeah. and losers and you've done well so why would people actually go into venture capital and it's simply because Higher risk, mm. higher return. High potential return, absolutely. And yep. uh, the returns, the next question everybody would always ask is, well, what sort of returns mm. would I see, could, I, could I see? Because like everybody, I want to be part of the next Twitter. Mm. I want to invest in the next Facebook. Yeah. Um, because I read that someone who invested a dollar in Facebook, if they ever had the opportunity, that one dollar is now worth you know, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. So the bad news is that doesn't happen very often, but the <laughs> kinds of returns realistically people can see are three to six times their money yeah. over a four to seven year period. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't sound like a very focused result, but if you invest in a fund that's well positioned and 
gives you exposure to enough investments, they're the types of numbers mm. you could see. And, you know, in, in short time frames like that, it's, it's hard to find investments that are going to give you that sort of return. Mm. Now, you can do it on the stock market if you are lucky enough to stock pick a couple of incredible winners. Yeah. Uh, but uh, t- in order to do that, you either need to work with someone who's really plugged in mm. or have some window into those companies yeah. that nobody else has. And as you say, though, a lot of those companies won't be making a profit yet or they may not even be making much revenue at the time you invest in them. When that, and, that, and that, I suppose, is really an indication of the higher risk. Correct. N- knowing when to invest in a company mm. is almost as difficult as knowing what company to mm. invest in. And there are some investors called angel investors who like to yep. invest at the extremely early stage mm. when you have nothing much more than two founders and an, and an idea. There are people who like to invest in the next round, which is classically called the A round or the mm-hmm. first round. And there are people also who like to come in later on. Yeah. So is our crowd uh, a a facility for people for people to take small investments in particular companies? Do they select the companies or do they invest in a portfolio uh, like what you're saying? Like, I understand. Like in a fund structure. So, so me talking about our crowd today shouldn't be taken as an advertisement no. for the company, please, Ruben. But uh, our crowd uh, is based in Israel. Mm-hmm. It was built around Israel as the startup nation. Israel, for many of your listeners will be familiar in terms of the fact that so many startups Mm. are generated out of Israel. And let me give you just an example. In Australia last year, the amount of venture capital that was raised in total was around $500 million Mm -hmm. in Australia. And in the same 12-month period, exits or sales of those businesses, there were about 90 exits and Mm. it generated about $1.6 billion dollars of exits. Yeah. So I think that half a million half half a billion dollars in, mm-hmm. 1.6 billion dollars out. In Israel last year, there were 6 and a half billion dollars invested in venture rounds wow. in a country with a th- with one third the population that we have. So that's 13 times the investment mm. money in and in the same period 23 billion dollars wow. exited across 123 and, exits. And obviously a lot of that funding was not you know from Israeli investors. I no, it's from, it external, from external. It's from diaspora yeah, investors, yeah. Jewish and not Jewish, yeah. who have cottoned on to the fact that Israel for the last twenty years has been this hotbed of continual mm. innovation, stimulated by government activity, government subsidies, tax treatments, mm. and a need for a country that has very limited natural resources to find ways to differentiate itself and play on global markets, mm. which it's done by using incredible intelligence, incredible drive, mm. and chutzpah, and yeah. making startups a wow. natural resource. Wow. So, so the Our Crowd business was built to democratize, if you like, mm-hmm. the availability of venture opportunities yep. that used to only be available to large funds or perhaps very high net wealth individuals. Mm-hmm. And it was built as an opportunity for people to access these deals at about ten to $20,000 investment size mm-hmm. at a time mm-hmm. on a deal-by-deal basis. Right. So rather than having to put your money into a fund and kiss it goodbye for a few years, you could see the investments that were being put on the platform 
for capital raising mm-hmm. at any time. And if it was an investment that you liked after you'd read the terms that our crowd had negotiated on mm-hmm. your behalf, if you were a member of our crowd, if you're a sophisticated investor, mm-hmm. meaning a wholesale investor, yeah, and whether you were happy to invest on the same terms as the general partners or the owners of the business, mm-hmm. you could then press a button to transfer your money and receive real equity in that business. Mm. When that business grows, your value on paper grows, and ultimately when the business sells in what we call a trade sale to, an, yeah. to another business or if it lists on a stock market somewhere in the mm. world, you would then get your original capital back and all of the capital growth yeah. and so, achieved. And so for those companies, uh, is it generally, so they're going to raise money, so they may have raised money from family, friends along the way. To that and, point. Right, to that point, and now they need to go to get some external capital. So will will their whole source of funding from that stage just come from our crowd or will they have, will there be other co-investors no, so That's a really well? good question. Most times that companies raise money on our crowd, mm-hmm. they might be doing a capital raising round of $6 million. Yeah. They might raise $3 million of that through our crowd yeah. and they may have $3 million coming from some other source. Mm-hmm. It might be a venture fund in yeah. Israel. It might be a venture yeah. fund out of California. Does that create any complications for the company itself to all of a sudden have, you know, tens and tens of other owners? Well, not really the because they're sort of grouped. They're sort of grouped up. Right. right? So the uh, uh, for for the company raising the money through our crowd, yeah. our crowd is really the single investor. Right, And okay. it invests the money out yeah. of a special purpose vehicle. I see. Effectively, that's grouping all those investors yeah. together for yeah. that one investment. Yeah. So they only have one face to talk to. Right. So and, and, and our crowd will often sit on the board of that company to look after right. the interests of the investors. I understand, but it's not like each of those individual investors have a vote. No, or... as much as they'd like. I mean, <laughs> the corollary of that is you often see young startups here who have had family and friend money to yeah. get started, and then they do their own capital raising and bring in money from, let's say, 20 mm. investors. So they raise $2 million by getting $100,000 from each of 20 investors. Mm. That entrepreneur now has at least 25 people phoning him up yeah. every so often to see how it's going. Yeah. And if he has a bit of a downturn or a bit of a lull or if he has to change directions and what mm. we call pivot, he needs to communicate that constantly mm. to 20 investors. Yeah. And we often see in young companies that becomes quite a load, which is not helping the core business. No. Well, what's, I suppose there must be some issue, though, in how do you actually value those companies? Because those companies are not making profits. You can't just simply value them. And so does our crowd actually as a platform part of the negotiation of what what price they're raising the equity Correct. At. So any, w- whether you're on a platform like our crowd or you do, mm. do what we do in our average day, yeah. look at young companies and strike a value mm. and then negotiate the terms under which you're going to invest, Yeah, what you're effectively doing is buying a fractional share of that business. Right. So you need to be able to go through the negotiation of that startup, coming to terms with them, and coming to a landing with them on mm. what all of you will agree their company is worth and therefore what your fractional mm. your number of shares is worth. That's a bit of a push and pull. The founder, of course, is trying to argue the maximum value he can and you're arguing 
the minimal value can. Yeah. Really not different to uh, the purchase of a, a house. Of a house. <laughs> it's it's yeah. really the same game. Yeah. And at the end of the day, rather than own the whole house, you're going to own one room as an yeah. investor. Yeah. Now, if it's me, myself owning that room or the deal team at our crowd who have negotiated the cost of that room and have a number of investors standing behind them, that process is no different. Right, right. Okay, excellent. Now, um, so so just well, just before we finish up on our crowd, so how many investments roughly will be on the platform at any one time? Okay, so still, still on our crowd, uh, yeah. at any one time there's usually three to four yeah. different businesses that are raising money. One will be almost done, so yeah. it'll sit up there for eight or ten days. Uh, occasionally we have a real cracker and the allocation is filled within literally hmm. a couple of hours. Wow. Um, and then there'll be one at the other end that's just starting. Yeah. Uh, but we've funded 150 businesses over the last three and a half years, having wow. raised five or $600 million wow. globally from a pool of some 20,000 investors worldwide. Wow. Okay, well, I want to move on. Uh, as I said, I did have a bit of a look at your LinkedIn profile, Nathan, and it seemed uh, you're on uh, a number of advisory boards. Um, I- I'm interested actually to know, because we will have some people who own you know, small, medium-sized businesses here, what the actual value of, of having an advisory board is and what, um, you know, whether or not everyone should be looking, regardless of business size, should be looking at uh, putting one in place. That's a really good question. So my, my view on advisory boards are they're not as good <laughs> as having people on your board. Yeah. So I think you need to have – my advice to most entrepreneurs is you put the right people on your board. Yeah. And if you need additional advice, just go out to people. Yeah. The problem with advisory boards are you get a lot of advice, but nobody really has necessarily skin in the game. Mm. Um, people who are – fiduciary directors who are literally on your board have yeah. real skin in the game mm. because they're regulated as directors and they have mm. responsibilities to sign off on your accounts and to guide the business on behalf of all the shareholders. So mm. I prefer to... Uh, go the whole hog. To, if you like, go the whole hog. Yeah. Many of my positions that you mentioned are actually either board member positions mm. or board observer positions, right? which means... Uh, we have a right to sit at the board and contribute. We just don't have a director vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I say there's limited value in boards of advisors, um, what I'm really saying is those advisors don't need to be corralled into a board. Right. They can still be available to a founder yeah. as an advisor or mentor mm. without being on some sub-board yeah. informal structure. Yeah. So. I imagine boards are, are, are like you know other sorts of committees and the like. There must be some that work really well and some that work quite poorly. What's the ingredients of a, of a board that actually functions well? That's a that's an unbelievably <laughs> good question. That's an unbelievably good question, uh, and there's no simple answer. Um, Australia's lucky to have the Australian Institute of Company Directors, yep. and uh, it exists to answer this question, I mm. think, in, in a great yeah, degree. Yeah. And the uh, the AICD, the Institute of Company Directors, provides training courses mm. and huge amounts of guidance on this issue. But an effective board is there to govern 
the company on mm-hmm. behalf of the shareholders. Yeah. To be effective, it has to have the right mix of skills. So mm-hmm. it needs to have representatives who are great communicators, who have financial and accounting backgrounds. If it's a technology company, you need to have a board that can understand the use of technology and, mm-hmm. and speak about it. You need to have a board who can get under the bonnet when there are people issues. And the people issues may even be asking the CEO to step aside. Yeah. Now, the CEO may or may not also be on the board. Mm. We have businesses mm. that we're involved in and boards are involved in where the CEO is also a director. Mm. And we have boards where the CEO is not a director. Right. Uh, and it's the board's job to mm. formulate direction, mm. validate that direction, and then instruct management, being the management mm. team, what the objectives are from this point. Mm. Um, and the board needs to be presented with good documentation and always be kept in mm. the loop mm. because without the right information, a board can't function. Mm. Uh, boards also need to have the right mix of gender, mm. which is, of course, a hot topic at the moment. Uh, and uh, gender really shouldn't be an issue on any board today. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose we've seen lately with this, with this Banking Royal Commission and we've seen AMP get into enormous trouble. You know, sometimes you look at the big public company boards and you think, you know, there are these directors that are earning a nice fee from all these companies um, and maybe sometimes you don't see what actual res- real responsibility they have. It's only when something kind of goes wrong that it really comes home to roost what the responsibility those directors have. Yeah, well, I I take very seriously uh, any board position I'm on. And Mm. in the times where I've had to be a public company board director, it's very visible. Mm. Uh, It's out in the open. Anybody can read all of the minutes. And you have to have good guidance Mm. to make sure that the company and yourself don't do the wrong thing because uh, they're punishable Mm. offences, even in smaller companies. So would those, is the board only really relevant when you have sort of outside investors coming into a business so the board so the directors can represent them as well? well would, I, would it make sense in a 100% owned family business for argument's sake? Well, you know, a- any company that you register mm. has a board and has directors and whether your right. accountants generate those minutes for you and just right. ask you to sign them, it is your responsibility every season to read what's been written before you put your signature on it because Mm. the last thing you want one day is for that document to be put in front of you in a courtroom and for you to amanar about whether you understood it all or actually signed it. (laughs) That's the purpose of minutes and signatures. In a public environment, as as we said, it's it's much more onerous and in general nowadays directors earn directors' fees because Mm. of the risk they take and they don't take on those positions until a company takes out directors and officers insurance mm. for them because of the downside mm-hmm. that's that can be connected to being mm. a director mm. uh, if things don't go sweetly mm. so the answer is you can have a small family business uh, where people are directors in title mm. and don't view their job mm. the same way as a more conscientious mm. director would and similarly uh, you can have family members take a more serious mm. you know, take a more serious view. You're 100 percent right that if someone takes a, a deep involvement financially in your business as a shareholder, at some point, usually around 10 to 15 percent, 
they are talking to you about, yeah. I want to be able to see how the business is running from the mm. inside and have a right to demand visibility of all accounts mm. uh, in order to protect my investment. Interesting. Okay, Nathan, well, we're coming towards the end of the show, but I always ask uh, ask my guests for their th- three top tips. And given the discussion we've had today, uh, I think probably the most relevant one for you is to give us three your three top tips for people who are embarking on a tech startup. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, I think in no particular order, but I'll try and get it right. Uh, if, if you're a young entrepreneur and you want to come and talk to someone about some funding for your business, make sure that the problem that your enterprise is solving is a big and real problem. Right. So think about what the addressable market space is and how many people will benefit from what your product or service does. Secondly, be really realistic about the research you do. Mm. So be very diligent about your research and your forecasts and, and be pragmatic and conservative because if you're not, the next person who looks at your business, whether it's a potential funder mm. or an advisor, they will be. <laughs> and there's nothing worse than the feeling of being half undressed when somebody has interrogated your numbers until they confess something <laughs> that you should have known better. The third is prepare to work really hard. Mm. And uh, and by that I mean really hard. The the years that you put into a startup uh, have to be done when you have uh, w- when you can afford the risk, and you need to get your family on board. So mm. uh, a, a young business and a young startup can be like a highly dependent child, mm. and you will miss uh, a school concert. <laughs> and uh, a growing business can be like a seriously ill parent. There yeah. will be times when you have to leave a family holiday to be on a conference call over and over. So uh, those would be my three tips. Solve a real big problem, do your research and be 100% truthful about your numbers from the get-go and prepare to work really hard. Terrific. All right, Nathan, well, thanks uh, very much for your time today. It's been great to have you on the show. I've obviously known you for a while, but I've learned a, a lot about what you do today, and I'm sure our listeners will, uh, will have enjoyed it as well. Uh, so, Thank you, Ruben. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get you on the show again at some point in the future. Okay, thanks. Okay, we're just going to take a very quick break, and then it will be time for my Propellerhead of the Week. Propellerhead of the Week. Now, most of you will have heard about public ancillary funds or charitable trusts. These are the sorts of funds where high net worth people uh, put money into, they invest it, they get a tax deduction for putting the money in, and then over time they can distribute that money to tax-deductible charities. Generally speaking, you'd need to have at least 500000 probably a million dollars to start one of these. Uh, so it's really not accessible for a lot of people. But there is another type of, f- of fund, which is called a public ancillary fund, which has got many of the same benefits, but without the same compliance burden. So just to be clear, let's say you had a year where you had a very high income and you wanted to make a large 
tax-deductible donation, but you didn't want to give it to the charities all at once. What you can do is put this into a public ancillary fund, get a tax deduction just like you would you know, if you were putting money into a super fund, and then you can actually request that public ancillary fund each year to distribute the earnings of it to a tax-deductible charity of your choice. And you can set it up with a little, as little as $50,000. Personally, I have uh, a public ancillary fund account with Australian Philanthropic Services, which is called the APS Foundation. Uh, I find it fantastic. I contributed a substantial amount in one year. They invested on my behalf, and the returns have been very good. And then I can select each year uh, a number of charities, which I choose, uh, which they will distribute the money to. And it works exceptionally well. So, look, thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, if you do have a chance, please search the Finance Hour on iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, that will help us uh, reach more people. Uh, otherwise, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week.